I want to share with you today from Luke chapter 5. If you'll take your Bible and open there, I usually preach from the New King James Version of the Bible, but I notice that you all have the New Revised Standard Version in the pew, and if that will be easier for you for you to use, I will read from the uh, NRSV. I also notice there's an NIV up here on the pulpit. So is it sort of whichever one? All right. I'll probably go ahead and read then from the New King James Version. Um, I began preaching from it many years ago when the King James was still the dominant translation. But many people did not understand the these and the thous and the sets and the dits and the duts and all that. And so I began preaching from the New King James because it softened those languages down so it's easier for us to understand in today's uh, culture. My nickname is Sing, and that is correct, Brother Cliff. Uh, Singleton is my middle name, my mother's maiden name, and I've been called Sing all my life. It was natural that I would sing in the choirs and learned how to read music, but beyond that, you don't want to hear me sing. But uh, hopefully when you leave here, you won't say, we don't want to hear him preach either. I want to preach today about the miracle of the morning, the miracle of the morning. I'm going to read the passage in just a few moments, but I want to give this introduction to it. The Bible gives many warnings about and against Satan. If you've read much in the Bible, you know that Satan is a real person. There is a real person called the devil. Jesus believed in the devil. He knew the devil to be real. God believes the devil is real. Those who believe the Bible believe the devil is real. But in our modern culture, we don't really believe much that the devil is real. But I want to share with you today, the Bible has much to say in warning us against and about Satan. And by the way, whenever I write the word Satan, I use a small s. Whenever I write the word devil, I use a small d. Let me tell you why. How many of you all, whenever you picture Satan or the devil, you think of God on one hand and Satan on the other? It's like God is on one shoulder whispering good words and Satan's on the older, other shoulder whispering bad words. I want to tell you that Satan is not equal with God. Satan is so far inferior to God that they're not even worthy of mentioning in the same breath other than to say that God created the, the angels and Satan is a fallen angel and he is way on down the list. In fact, greater is the Holy Spirit who lives in you than Satan. Do you all believe that? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's, that's a biblical teaching out of 1 John. And so we realize that Satan is a created being. He is not equal with God. He is a little s, little d created being. But he does try to wreak his havoc in your life and mine. For example, Paul warned against the wiles of the devil in Ephesians chapter 6. When I was a young person still trying to learn how to get all my letters uh, to, to say them correctly. I read that word W-I-L-E-S and it looks like willies. Well, beware the willies of the devil. They're real. The wiles of the devil are real. He wants to trick you and deceive you. Some of you may remember the old cartoon back in the day, Roadrunner, and his arch enemy was Wiley Coyote. And Wiley Coyote was always trying to do things to get Roadrunner tricked up and messed up and that's what Satan wants to do to you. Paul also reminded us not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. And one of the devices of Satan is to create in the human heart of those who know God. Not, not the lost world, those who know the Lord. To create an unforgiving spirit. And how many of our churches today have their spiritual vitality sapped 
Because there are those in the church who cannot forgive one another. And those are the, the devices of Satan. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Peter urged us to be uh, vigilant for our adversary. The devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we find that in 1 Peter chapter 5. And can you picture Satan walking around like that lion? And he's just looking for you, waiting for you. And as soon as he thinks he can get you, pounce! He's going to get you. And Peter said, be vigilant because that's who Satan is. James encourages us to resist the devil. And when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. James chapter 4. And Jesus modeled that for us perfectly when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Have you read Matthew 4 lately or Luke 4 lately? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And while he was in the wilderness, he was tested or tempted by Satan. And how did Jesus overcome? Well, he resisted the devil. He withstood Satan in the power of the Holy Spirit and through his reliance upon the written Word of God. And Satan eventually had to leave because Jesus was not a likely target. Daniel wrote that one of his most agonizing and earnest prayers was hindered for 21 days. He prayed. And finally the angel came and spoke to him and said, Your prayer was resisted by the adversary. But when Michael the archangel came and resisted Satan, then your prayer was heard and Daniel found sweet comfort and sweet relief. But it was 21 long days of agonizing, intense prayer. And I'm sure during those days he wondered on occasion, where is God when I need Him? Zechariah the prophet testified of his opposition and accusation brought by Satan. When Zechariah appeared before the Lord... Actually, Zechariah is writing about it when, when Joshua, the, the high priest, appeared before the Lord. Satan opposed him and tried to make Joshua feel like he had no value in the eyes of a holy God. But then the Lord said, remove the dirty robes from him and clothe him with the white robes of my righteousness. Job's story is a story of Satan bringing every imaginable calamity upon Job that he could possibly bring. All for the purpose of causing Job to curse God and die. And yet you know that Job did not. At the end of all of his calamity, Job said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. John in the book of Revelation characterized Satan with five telling descriptors. In Revelation 12, in one verse, these descriptors appear. The dragon, the serpent of old, the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the world. I want to share with you today that Satan is real and we need to be wary of him. Paul identified Satan as the prince of the power of the air and also as the god of this world. And I might add, he's also the prince of the power of the airwaves. Amen? Have you looked at the television lately? Have you looked at what's coming across the airwaves lately? Have you listened to what's coming across the radio waves lately? He is the prince of the power of the airwaves as well as of the air. Satan is real. He's blinded the eyes and the minds of those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. We find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 2 about the prince of the power of the air. Clearly, we need to be on guard against Satan and his wiles. But I want you to hear this verse from 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, 
and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. Did you hear that? Escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Satan wants to destroy your life. Now, our task is to use gentleness, tact, and skill to correct those who have not embraced Jesus as the truth so that they may escape the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Do you hear that? Taken captive, captured, deceived, tricked, trapped, lured on. Strong words to describe Satan's tactics. And Satan dangles so many desirable prizes and so many delectable morsels even before us who know Him that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. And sometimes we forget that we are on mission with God. But I want you to notice in our text today, Luke chapter 5, down in verse 10. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. Something very interesting. The word for catch here is the same word that is used over in 2 Timothy 2. Satan is out to catch men. Satan is out to catch women. Satan is out to catch boys and girls. But the Lord is sending you on me on mission to catch them, to bring them in, not for the purpose of destruction, but for the purpose of life, the purpose of meaning, the purpose of joy, the purpose of having a right relationship with the Creator God who revealed Himself through Jesus Christ, His one and only Son, the One who died on the cross for our sins. So hold this thought about taking captive what Satan is wanting to do, but what God is calling us to do as we turn our attention to the text in Luke chapter 5. And I want to read verses 1 through 11. And then I want us to notice four words together out of this text. If you will stand with me, please, in honor of the Word of God as we read together Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the Word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. 
Let's pray. Our Father, as we look into this story from the Holy Text, we ask that the Holy Spirit would enlighten our hearts and our minds, would encourage our spirits, would equip us in our obedience and our yieldedness to You, and that the Holy Spirit would send us out to be men and women on mission, young people on mission, boys and girls on mission, people of every generation on mission, catchers of men and women who meet Christ, that they would not be captured by the adversary who seeks to kill and to steal and to destroy. Oh Lord, let us hear your word as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I do want to mention these four words to you today. The first word is the word weariness. Weariness. Weariness in the midst of the routines of life. If you notice with me, you'll see that Peter and the other disciples had been fishing all night long. I have a little equation that I have written about this particular passage. Toil plus tedium equals tiredness. Toil plus tedium equals tiredness. How many of you all have worked one of those long, long days or long, long nights where you just feel the weariness that's in your shoulder blades? It just sort of causes you to almost stagger and stumble when you finally get home and you you fall into the chair to eat a little bit of supper, maybe you watch a little bit of television, and then you roll over into bed and you are just bone-weary. Oil. Now think about the word tedium. You see, it, it so often works that when we get home from a, a long day of toil, we can't just fall into bed. We have a lot of little things we have to do. Those of you that are moms, you have children and they're waiting for something to be served on the table. And so you, you fix the dinner meal and after the dinner meal is over, maybe you as a child, you've been tired from school and you came home and worked on your homework. Maybe you were in a sports program or some other act, extracurricular activity. And after dinner is over, you're ready just to go relax. And your mom says, how dare her, I want you to clean up the dishes. And you think the tedium of the day and all these little things. Toil plus tedium equal tiredness. And these disciples were weary, weary men in the midst of the routines of life. Look at the toil of the night. Peter said, we have fished all night. And caught nothing. Look at the tedium of the day. They're sitting there on the side of the lake repairing their nets. They're mending their nets. And you think about it. If you go out fishing, now these were net fishermen. They were not fishing with the fishing pole. But how many of y'all fish with the fishing pole and, and the line snags on some structure underneath the surface? Boy, you work it and you try to get it loose and, and finally it comes up. But when it comes up, your bait's gone, your, your hook has been bent, maybe the leader even broke. Uh, the weight is gone. If you had a bobber on it, the bobber is, bobber is broken loose and it's, it's floating away from you. Maybe it's got that junk all over it. Or maybe you caught something or, or a snarl and you've got to get all that undone. You're thinking, man, I'd rather be fishing than doing all this stuff. Well, these guys were net fishermen. And they usually are expecting to bring the nets up with fish in them. And if there's a tear, it's because of the, uh, of the fins on the fish maybe or the, just the number of fish or one trying to back out. But they bring it in. But this time they've caught nothing. And so why are the nets torn? Because they're catching all kinds of junk. Dragging the bottom. 
Things that are happening in their nets. And they're having to, to take the nets and, and tie together all the little tears. It's a tedious work and they're already tired. And Jesus comes. He says to Peter, I want you to push your boat a little way out from the water and let me teach. And Peter did that. We're going to see in a moment though, however, that he was just tired. And so we see the toil of the night, the tedium of the day, and the tiredness of the morning. I want to share with you, these are fishing pros. If you have ever gotten up before light to go fishing, would you raise your hands? All right. If you've ever gotten up before light to go hunting, would you raise your hands? If you ever fished all night, would you raise your hands? Yeah, I see some of those. Okay. Most of you did it for recreation, right? You had a break. Oh, what a fun time. Oh, let's go and just wear ourselves out having fun. These guys were not out there all night for fun. These were pros. You think about what they were doing that night. They were doing the right things in the right ways in the right places at the right time. And they caught nothing. I want to make a little application. Several applications along the way. Here's one of them. How many of you all sometimes feel like you're doing the right thing for God? In the right ways? In the right places at the right times? And yet for all that you do for the Lord, it seems like your life is absolutely empty and God is not even aware. You ever feel that way? That's weariness. Weariness in the midst of the routines of life. Peter and the disciples, they were weary, 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 bone weary. They had caught nothing. Do you hear the weight of that word? Do you feel the weight of that word? Are you oppressed by its weight? Nothing. After all that toil, nothing. What tedious things are you facing in your life? There are a lot of tedious things that you have to deal with. How many of y'all are dealing with a broken home? Maybe it's the broken home that you yourself are in and you're going through the heartache of having to learn a whole new set of skills because where it used to be two parents, a husband and wife that are doing the duties around the house, now it's fallen the responsibility of only one. It used to be two parents who were the taxi cab service taking the kids back and forth to all the functions and now it's one. It used to be two parents who were bringing home an income to help meet all the responsibilities and obligations and bills. But now it's one. And the tedium sometimes is overwhelming. But maybe it's not your home. Maybe it's the home of your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad, your brother or your sister. Just the tedium and the toil and the weariness of life. Maybe it's a wayward child. How many times over the years have I talked with parents who've come to my home to, to, to my home or to my office broken and said, Brother Singh, we just don't know what to do with him. We don't know what to do with her. Nothing we do, it, it, we just can't get through anymore. And just that weight, the weariness, the, the loneliness, the dragging down. It could be financial worries. How many of y'all have had a few worries in the last couple of weeks? A few worries about gas and the price and then gas and its availability. 
But now the worries about the financial market and if Congress is going to be able to bail out and if they bail out, if we're going to have to pay it all, if government's going to go, what's going to happen to the economy? We're in a tailspin. And I mean, we are worried, worried, worried. We are weary, weary, weary. We're looking every day. We're reading everything we can. We're watching all the news and we just get depressed. Weariness in the midst of life. Maybe your job has been downsized, your job does not exist any longer, and that which you depended upon to bring you fulfillment, or that which you depended upon to meet your income needs is gone from you. Maybe it's a death call, as Lyle received this week, or Susan actually received this week, to hear that her mother has passed away. And, and many of you have faced those times in your life, or maybe it's just a disgruntled church friend, somebody that has been a friend for years, and now they've gotten at odds with you. And it's just the, the tedium of trying to know, what did I do wrong? How do I rebuild these relationships? Why, when I come in that door, do they walk out that door? Health issues. We could go on and on and on. But toil plus tedium equals tiredness. And these guys were just tired. Now, they were not yet tired of it all. Where they fished all night didn't catch anything. In effect... One-sixth of their income for that week is gone. But supposing it went another night and they caught nothing. And another night and they caught nothing. And another night and they caught nothing. Given a few more fishless nights, they would have been tired of it all. How, does it, how long does it take for us to lose hope, to give up on God? One reason we miss so much joy in our personal lives is that we are consumed with the weariness of it all. But I want to give you a reminder today, again, an application of this text. We're reading from Luke 5. Go back one chapter, Luke 4. Jesus, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Very important verse. Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was what? Was led by the Spirit where? Into the desert, into the wilderness. You see, sometimes you may be doing God's bidding and God's call and doing the right things in the right ways in the right places at the right times and you find yourself in the wilderness, in the desert of life and you're saying, surely God would never bring me here. I want to share with you if God would lead His own Son into the wilderness, there may be times God leads us into the wilderness as well. Now the good news is God knew exactly where Jesus was in the wilderness and if you go down through chapter 4, Get down to verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Though He was in the wilderness, Jesus knew that His nurture, His strength, His nourishment came from a relationship with the Heavenly Father. And Jesus fed His soul with the Word of God and with fasting and prayer. And Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And so can we. I think about Moses. Many of you know the story of Moses. What you may not remember, this is in the Bible text itself. Moses was on the backside of the desert. And yet God knew exactly where Moses was so that when that bush began to burn but was not consumed, the bush that burned that was not consumed was right where Moses was going to see it. God knows right where you are. 
He knew right where these disciples were. And we're going to see in a moment the miracle of their morning. And we're going to pray for the miracle of our own morning. So here's a life lesson we can learn from this text. Toil plus tedium equals tiredness. But thankfully, the story does not end there. I want to share with you a second word. Willingness in spite of the reluctances of life. Willingness in spite of the reluctances of life. When Jesus gets on our boat, we can always expect something more. Look again at the text and you'll see it with me. Jesus got into one of the boats. This is verse 3, which was Simon's, and asked him to put a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. For many years, I led and directed our kids' camp every summer. And one of the things we did was a favorite. Every kid loved to do this. It was third, fourth, and fifth graders. And uh, the fourth graders and fifth graders say, Brother Singh, we're going to do it this year. Do we do it this year? Yeah, we're going to do it this year. The third graders, do what? Do what? We go out by the lake. And I tell everybody to be real quiet, be real still. And I would tell them something you may not know. And it's, it's physics. I don't tell them all the physics of it. But water acts as a natural amplifier. Because the sound waves impact the hard surface of the water. And as they do that, there's a certain wave that takes place. And what will happen is when you yell across a body of water that is still, that water will bounce and reflect and it goes to the far side. And then it bounces it back and you can hear the echo after just a slight delay. And we would stand there and I'd say, well, I'm going to count one, two, three. We're all going to say real loud, Jesus is Lord. And I said, and we do that. I warn them. Absolute silence. Don't anybody say, cool. Everybody say, wow. Absolute silence. We're going to hear the waters and the hills echo back to us that Jesus is Lord. And we do that. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord. Boy, we yell that. He'd go across the water. The trees on the other side would reflect it back to the water. It'd bounce back to us. And we'd hear it like, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And then they go, cool. Can we do it again? Can we do it again? We'd always do it two or three times every year. Now, I want to tell you that Jesus understood the physics of amplification. You know why? He was God in the flesh. He knew everything. He said, Peter, i got a big crowd here. It's more than I can address with my voice and just a normal thing. Put out a little bit, and I'm going to let the water amplify my voice that all can hear. Man, it went out. And the people were hearing the teaching, and Peter was hearing the teaching. And Peter's over there, and I guess maybe he took his nets with him. I don't know. He put out a little from the land. He's sitting in the boat. Maybe he's working on the nets. Maybe he's sort of looking up, and maybe he's doing this. Have you ever done this? I mean, he's tired. By the way, if you go to sleep during the sermon today, and you've been awake all night because something's going on in your life, and this is the most restful, peaceful, quiet moment of your week, maybe that's the most spiritual thing you can do. Amen? If you go to sleep today because you stayed up late, not, up late watching the Late Late Show or you know, surfing the Internet or texting your friends or whatever it was, if you stay up late doing that and you're just sleepy today and you didn't come prepared to hear a word from God, shame on you. Right? Peter's fighting it, man. I mean, he's fighting it, I think, because he's tired. But he was willing to put his boat out. He was willing to say, yes, Jesus, I'll let you take advantage of the amplification of the water and we'll put out the boat here. And Peter's listening to Jesus teach. And as Jesus is teaching, in the reluctances of his life, Peter 
was willing. Their boat had become a willing vessel for Jesus to converse with the crowd. Their nets, we're going to see in a moment, become willing vehicles for Jesus to direct the, the catch. But their hearts were going to become willing partners for Jesus to command for His mission. In this part of the story, perhaps the two most telling words are these in the translation that I use. Look at verse 5. In verse 4, when Jesus had stopped speaking, He said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Look at the first word of the next verse. But, but Peter said, but Peter said, but, how many of y'all have ever heard that word? Any parents here? How many of you have ever heard this? But mom, you ever heard that, moms? But dad, you ever heard that, dads? I see a lot of young people here. It's a real joy to see you all uh, sort of front and center, and I see other young people scattered around. How many of y'all have ever said those words? But mom, get with the program. You don't understand. Everybody's doing it. All the cool kids are going to be there. Dad. And Peter's like, but Jesus. And how many of us do that to God? But, but, but God, you don't understand. Now hold on, let me get that straight a moment. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Huh? Is God going in heaven? Oh, wow, you're right. I didn't think about that. No. But we do it anyway. But God, you just don't get it. You don't understand. I, I had my life well planned. I, I knew what I was going to be doing. Everything was in, in order. And now you're asking me to launch out to the deep and, hey, I'm the pro, I'm the fisherman, I know where to go, I knew the right place, right ways, right times, all those things. But look in the middle of the verse. But nevertheless, 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 at your word, we will let down the net. See, there may be a reluctant willingness, but there's at least the willingness. And Peter said, Lord, I don't really understand what's going on here. I'm bone tired. I'm weary all the way down to the core. But at your word, at your word, I'll act. And so you know the story we read it a moment ago. As they let down the net over on the other side, you see, Jesus knew where all the fish were. The fact is, I don't know, he might have just had them all show up. He's the master teacher. I'm sure he knows how to command the schools. And they all show up. And they start running their nets through the water. And what happens? The nets that they had just mended start to break. Did you see that? I want to tell you something very important. When you've caught nothing, the broken nets are irksome, troublesome, wearying. But when the nets break because you got a big catch, that's where the excitement comes. Amen? I mean, they started, I don't know how they did it. I don't know if it was shallow enough for them to jump out of the boat and start grabbing the fish and throwing them up in the boat. 
But they're throwing these fish up in that boat, and that boat's getting so heavy, it's starting to go down, 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 down. And pretty soon, the gunnels have a little water splashing up over them. And they motion for their friends to come over. Their friends bring their boat, and they're just throwing all these fish in the boats. And pretty soon, both boats began to sink. I want to tell you, that's a miracle. Amen? It's the miracle of the morning. Peter saw that, and something began to happen on the inside. He, who had just said, but... He who then said, nevertheless, is now seeing that God is about to do something amazing and powerful. What has the Lord asked you to do? What has the Lord restricted you from doing? What, where are you in the continuum of willingness? See, some of you are refreshed and ready, willing and able right now. God says that you're ready to do it. Some of you are a little bit more ready and willing, but maybe not able. You can't do the things you used to be able to do. And you're wondering, is there a place for me? in the kingdom of God. and Some of you may even ask, why am I still here? Some of you may be just reluctant. Lord, I don't really want to do that. Some of you are resistant. Lord, I'm not going to do that. Some of you have great reservations. You're reserved in your expectations. God, if I do that, it's not going to work. Nothing's going to come out of it. But why not join Peter in his repentant spirit Lord, nevertheless, at Your Word. You see, God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for every life, and He has a plan for you. You say, how do you know that? Well, you know the verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. How many of y'all know that? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. To give you a hope and a future. God had a plan, and Peter, in the midst of his weariness, said, Lord, there is a willing spirit in the reluctances of life. That leads us to the third word I want to share. It's the word worship. Worship in recognition of His majesty and might. You see, the miracle of the morning always follows our obedience to His command. The miracle never comes until the obedience has been exercised. How many of y'all remember reading in the book of Joshua when... The, the spies had gone in, they spied out the land, and the Lord said, okay, it's now time to go across the Jordan. Now, the Jordan was in the floodplain. I mean, the waters were rushing down. I guess it had logs and big old stumps and all kinds of things that were washing down with the tide. It was a dangerous time to try to cross the Jordan River. And here's what they said, the, the priests are to bear the ark, and the priests are to come to the flood, the flood of the Jordan. And when they come to the flood... They are to put their foot in the flood of the Jordan. As they put their foot in the Jordan, the water will dry up. I want you to see how they come. There are four priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember that there are two poles that go through the Ark, through the rings? And the priest on the front, has one of them has right here. The other one over here has it right here. Okay, and the Ark's between them. Behind them, this guy has it. This guy has it. And they come up to the flooded Jordan. And when they get there, here's how a lot of us act. Okay, Lord, you dry it up and I'll step. And the Lord said, you step and I'll dry it up. Oh, Lord, that doesn't make sense. You dry it up and I'll step. The Lord says, you step and I'll dry it up. And when the priests actually put the sole of their foot into the water, here's the miracle. As they put their foot there, the waters began to back up and form a big heap, a heap of water. I've never seen a heap of water. I've seen a heap of water washing, but never a heap of water just heaped up. 
But as they stepped there, the water began to heap up. And all the people walked. They went to the middle of the river, you remember, and they stood there with this heap getting bigger and bigger. And all the people walked by on dry land. And after all the people had walked by, then the priest came out and then the waters came back down. Are you aware that the miracle of the morning always follows the step of obedience? And Peter had stepped out of obedience and now there is a worship that happens when Peter and the other disciples obeyed the Lord. Notice, they caught such a great draft of fish that their nets, recently repaired nets, began to break. And when Peter saw that, do you see what he did? Look again at the text. Down in verse 8, when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter recognized he was in the presence of a good and godly man. He fell down and worshipped. As time passed, we're going to find out later in the text, we're only in chapter 5 of Luke. You go on through the rest of the book. As time passed, Peter saw more and more that Jesus was more than just a good and a godly man. Jesus was the God-man. He was God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. And Jesus had come for the purpose of redemption. And Peter was going to witness eventually Jesus go to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus bore our sins in His own flesh that through His death we might have everlasting life. Now Peter had not yet seen the cross. We have seen it. Amen? We look backwards. And we see the cross. Peter had not yet seen it, but he's already beginning to realize this man is not like any other man I've known. And Peter falls at his knees and begins to worship Jesus, the King. By the way, genuine worship is never about style. It's about substance. Can I get an amen? Let me tell you what genuine worship is. It's when these two things occur together. We recognize our worthlessness And we recognize and acknowledge His worthiness. And when that happens, worship has taken place. How many of you all in your quiet time at home have one day just been, been overwhelmed by your own worthlessness? And you recognize His worthiness. And your heart begins to sing, Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in saving me. Has that ever happened to you in your own quiet time with the Lord? If that's happened, you've worshiped. You don't have to be in a church building to worship. Now, when you come here, hopefully you will worship. But sometimes we bring in all of those reluctancies and we do not hear God speak and we do not see the Lord lifted and we do not really worship even though we go through the songs and the prayers and the giving and the teaching and the preaching and we may leave here cold because we've not encountered the living Christ but when we recognize who we are. And Peter said, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. We recognize who He is. The Lord God of glory. Worship takes place. There's so much more I could say about worship. Our time is slipping away. But let me just state this again. Peter... Weary, but willing, saw the work of God and was driven to worship. Are you worshiping in your daily life? 
When Peter recognized this is a work of God, not of his own fishing ability. Here's another equation I have. I mentioned a moment ago I mentioned toil plus tedium equals tiredness. Another one, weariness plus willingness plus worship equals readiness to hear his words. The fourth word I want to share with you is the word words. Words that create a total paradigm shift in life. Here are these 11 English words that change everything. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. 11 words that change everything. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. I want to ask a couple of questions. If you are part of the builder generation, the builder generation has been called by Tom Brokaw the greatest generation. It's a generation that weathered and survived the Great Depression and won World War II. Those of you that were born before, prior to 1946, in other words, 1945 and prior, if you don't mind admitting it, would you stand, please? The builder generation, would you stand? Those who were born prior to 1945, or 46 rather, 45 and prior. I want all those who are not standing to turn around and look at these. And we want to applaud you because you have paid the price of building one of the greatest missionary generations the world has ever known and one of the greatest countries and economies the world has ever seen. And we do applaud you. Thank you so much for standing. If you're in the baby boomer generation, those born between 1946 and 1964, the baby boomer generation, would you stand? Wow, what a mighty army of baby boomers, amen? I think the builders have you outnumbered here today, slightly. But the baby boomer generation is the generation that right now is the parents of those who are college age and above. By and large, you may have some children born later in life, but you're those that are high school seniors, college age and above, and, and you right now are you're the backbone of the American economy. You are the backbone of the moral hope of our nation. You're going to be receiving more money over the next 20 years through the transfer of estate wealth than ever before in the history of the world. And what you do with that money, whether you devote it to kingdom purposes or you consume it for personal interests, may change the face of the United States and of the world. You're aware of that. But I applaud you for being in church today, the baby boomer generation. Thank you. God bless you. You may be seated. If you're part of the baby buster generation, so-called busters, call that because it's not nearly as big as the boomer generation, 1965 to 1983, would you please stand? Baby busters, 1965 to 1983. Now I want you all to look around. Did you see? How many of you all noticed something? You notice something? Not only is this a smaller generation in terms of the total population of our country, two-thirds of the builders made some type of confession that Jesus is Lord. That had gone down to just over one-third of the busters, I'm sorry, of the boomers. It had gone down to just over 17% of the buster generation. I want to challenge you as busters, that the generation in which you are right now, 
most of the people in your generation have already been captured by Satan and are doing his will. And Jesus says to you, as well as to the builders and the boomers, but he says to you, follow me. I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men and women and boys and girls. I will make you the catchers who can recover and retrieve a generation that has been lost. But thank you all for being here. Amen. You may be seated. I want to ask how many of you are here in the millennial generation. The millennial generation, those that were born in 1984 to the present. Would you please stand? The millennial generation. We have some that are two or three or four years of age. I'm glad you're here. But you notice something else about this generation. Slightly larger in attendance, I think, or maybe about the same. Sort of clumped together here. Quite a few more up in the balcony. Your generation is desperately in need of Christ. In the Southern Baptist Convention, we are reaching fewer of our own children than any other generation on record. I'm glad you all are here. You all are the hope of our country and the hope of the world. I want to share with you what we need in our nation. We need a million ministering millennials, mentoring millions more for the Master. Can y'all say that? Let's see if we can say that together. We need a million ministering millennials, mentoring millions more for the Master. And I want to share with y'all something exciting. When Peter and James and John and, and Andrew were on their fishing boats, they probably were the ages of the older of you that are standing. They were probably in their late teens to early 20s. John perhaps was 17 years of age. And Jesus said to these young men, Follow me. Satan is catching everything he can. But follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And oh, that you would hear the call of the Lord Jesus upon your heart and say, regardless of our generation. You see, the, the builder generation, there are those in your generation who are lost as a goose, lost as a ball in tall weeds, they're on their way to hell, and they already have one foot in the grave. Many of them are in the nursing home. Their health has declined. We somehow think, well, they're part of the older generation. They must be okay. Oh, no, they're not okay unless they know Jesus. Amen. And the boomer generation, you're thinking, well, our generation has so much health and vigor and vitality and, and so many of them are going to be around for so long. There's always tomorrow. There is not always tomorrow. The buster generation, we saw a moment ago how desperately the need is in yours. But in this generation, you have all the advances Techno technologically. I mean, you can text message your friends about Jesus. You can instant message your friends about Jesus. You can email your friends about Jesus. You can get on all these little different groups on the internet, Facebook and everything else, and you can be salt and light for the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, if you get on all those things, I encourage you, ask your mom and dad to be your accountability partners. Amen? 
And you can make a difference for Jesus in your generation. Now, there's not a million millennials here today, but you can be part of that group that says, I will be part of the million ministering millennials, mentoring millions more for the Master. Would you say it with me again? We need a million ministering millennials, mentoring millions more for the Master. And may you be that generation. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you all for being here. I want you to notice how the story closes. The very last verse, verse 11. So when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. There's an old song that most of you know in all the generations. I've decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Is that the commitment you've made from your heart and life? Are you a follower of Jesus? Will you be the follower? Will you be the catcher of men and women? Recovering them from the snare or the trap of Satan who has taken them captive at His will to do His bidding. Will you be on mission for God? Sometimes the weariness of the routine of life causes us to lose focus, forget that we're on mission. But may we see the willingness, even in the reluctances of life, that drives us to the worship of His majesty and might, that we can then hear His words that create a paradigm shift, that we'll be on mission for God as lifelong followers of the Savior.